anytime you can maintain like a gratitude for where you're at, you're going to get to a more satisfying place. Because when I have interpreted my existence as miserable, it's only ever brought me more misery. It's like, you know, neuroscience and also spiritualism that we'll talk about. And it's like, you know, the things you focus on are the things that you see. And so I think that's it as well as like, you're never also going to get to a point in your career that you're like, oh, I've made it. And this is the end dust off my hands. Like we're all done and dusted, you know, shows over. It's like, you have to, every week is a new, (laughs) is a new struggle. Do you love your life as a small business owner? Let's be real. Sometimes we just don't. It's my hope that this, the My Daily Business podcast, helps you regain a little of that lost love through practical, actionable tips, tools, and tactics, interviews with creative and curious small business owners, and in-depth coaching episodes with me, your host, Fiona Kalaki. With more than 20 years experience in marketing, brand, content, and systems, and having now helped thousands of small business owners, I know what it takes to build a business that you can be proud of and that actually aligns with your values, your beliefs, and your hopes for the future. So much of our daily life is spent working on and in the businesses and the brands that we are creating. And so it makes sense to actually love what you do. So let's get into this podcast and help you figure out how to love your business and your life on the daily. Hello and welcome to episode 370 of the My Daily Business podcast. Today you're listening to an interview and it is with somebody who's super curious, super creative and someone whom I just have such an enjoyable moment whenever I get to talk to her because she's really intelligent and just funny and human and just wonderful as you'll get to see. But today it is the last interview for 2023 and I just want to say a massive massive thank you for continuing to listen to this podcast, to subscribe, to share it with people, to share it on social media. We still get so many DMs. And I say still because so many people start a podcast and it kind of might do well for six months or a year. And we are three years into this podcast and 370 episodes. And I do not take it for granted ever, ever, ever when we get sent a text or somebody leaves a review or someone shares it on social media. So I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for another amazing year of having this podcast. So let's get into today's interview. But before we do, I just want to, of course, pay my respects and acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians on the land on which I do these interviews and I get to meet these amazing people. And that is the Wawarong and Rundri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded. All right, let's get into today's interview. So today, as the last interview for 2023, it is my absolute pleasure to bring you a chat that I did a couple of weeks ago now with the wonderful and super creative and curious and always funny and just enlightening Juliet Miranda Rose. So Juliet is an artist, writer and educator based in Melbourne, Nam in Australia, and she has more than a decade of working in local creative industries and with some huge brands, some smaller brands, some really, really meaningful, interesting work. And today we talk through how that has all happened and the types of art and creations that she works on and enjoys the most. And she's had more than five years working in film, television, and media. And she's also been a mentor, a teacher, an educator, and she works in 
all sorts of spaces with all sorts of people. Now, Juliet and I first met, I think, through Instagram. I was following her on Instagram. And then it was just such a delight when she applied for group coaching. And getting to know Juliet over the last year has just been just wonderful, to be honest. She's one of those people that you would absolutely happily be stuck in some sort of really long haul plane ride with because she would be funny. She'd also be like, okay, this is enough of our talking. I want to watch this movie now. She would be ordering all the fun drinks. She would just make it an enjoyable experience. And from the very first session that we had in group coaching, somebody else brought up something quite vulnerable and it can be a challenging situation, I guess, when people are first meeting each other, because there's the people who want to go full ball and share everything. There's people who hold back a little bit. And that just, you know, happens in every sort of group situation. But I remember when this person so beautifully and bravely shared something and Juliet just came in with this response that was so human, so touching, and just opened up the doors for everyone else to feel safe in sharing. And I always remember that moment. And there were so many moments like that within group coaching where Juliet would be asking these really insightful questions, or she would be, you know, making us all laugh, or she would be sharing some incredible documentary or article or study that she'd just seen. And as I said, she's an absolute delight to be around. Her brain is just functioning all the time, thinking, coming up with these beautiful things. And and just, she's such an artist in every sense of the word. And so I wanted to have Juliet on to talk about how she has created the business that she's created, how she has moved from different mediums and how she runs all of that in addition to, you know, the other things that she's interested in and the other creative pursuits she has outside of work. So I know that this is going to be really lovely chat that you're going to listen to. And I just want to thank Juliet for coming on. She is a busy person and to come on and share so many ideas and tips and insights and also just humanity. That's, I think, one of the best things that I know we're all human. We're not robots, but honestly, some people feel like robots. And Juliet is absolutely not that. She is the person that is warm and caring and excited and, you know, just willing to get into whatever topic that you want to talk about in detail. And yeah, it's just been a delight to work with her and a delight to have her on the podcast. So here it is, my interview with the wonderful, creative Juliet Miranda Rowe. Hello, Juliet. Welcome to the podcast. How are you feeling about life right now? I'm like a bit all over the place at the moment. My birthday is coming up this weekend. And oh, happy birthday. Thank you. I normally have a personal existential crisis every year for my birthday, but it's come a little early this year with just general global existentialism. But, you know, personally, I life is pretty good. So it's a interesting time. Yeah, my life, very grateful for it, you know, immensely, immensely renewed sense of gratitude for the most mundane freedoms in my life. So I'm good, but definitely some big questions about general, (laughs) general world. (laughs) Yes, I feel like that. Oh, I feel like that too. Literally before we got on this call, I just saw something on social media, just about a First Nations child and consuming but also trying to figure out like what can I do like what is my what can I do here because it can be really overwhelming but it's like what action can I take what can I do and also yeah totally it's a very huge reminder of everything that we have and have to be grateful for 
your work is one of the things that I'm grateful for and just meeting you and connecting with you. And so your beautiful work has been featured in many prestigious arts institutions in Melbourne, but also across across the globe. I think you've got some incredible brands that you've worked with that are global, such as Oxfam and other such things. How did you go about building your brand and establishing yourself as an artist in what is a highly competitive creative industry? Yeah, it's interesting because I like ebb and flow with using the word artist. I'm definitely back in using it now. So my background, I went to art school straight out of high school. I mean, I thought of myself as an artist since I was a child because I was very precocious and my parents were working class, but they had, they were ceramicists and potters, I suppose, like as hobbyists. And they raised us really creatively and were like very, very, what I've learned now, like they were like very encouraging in a way that I suppose other parents aren't with creative stuff. So I actually like had to change primary schools from between prep and year one. And when I changed schools in year one, I like convinced the people at the school there that I had been at art school, like in prep, that I <laughs> I thought of myself as an artist from a really young age. And yeah, I think I thought being an artist was kind of like just a lifestyle. It was like who you are. It's like how you see and experience the world. And then when I actually got to art school as a 17, 18-year-old, I learned that like <laughs> the art industry, particularly back then, because this was like 2008, it was, you know, the internet was only really just starting to disrupt the way that we consume and sell and trade art. So back then I remember the dean on our like orientation day was quite literally like only one out of 100 of you will make it within the arts. And that was really the general feeling in 2008 that was like, yeah, being an artist is so rare, like making money, like you're a struggling artist, making money from making art is something that like only really trust fund babies get to do. And that was the other thing. I'd come from like in a North public school environment. I definitely had experienced, I thought I had experienced wealthy people, but I was wrong until I got to art school and like majority of the population had come from private schools and you wouldn't be able to tell from the way they presented themselves but you know you'd have conversations with people and you just realize that yeah like there was a lot of wealth there was a lot of generational wealth there was a lot of nepotism that the entire industry is is run on nepotism and it's interesting because I know that there's been a lot of talks about nepotism recently in general within lots of different industries and I think that people, I can see why people are enraged by it, but I actually think that people ignored the fact that what it teaches us is that your networks and communities are more important than what you actually know. And I think even though I came from humble beginnings, just being able to go to art school provided me access to all of these people who have other access that even though it took me a lot longer to get anywhere, it's like I definitely was privileged to have access to meeting those people and the access that their connections provided. So, yeah, it was really long. Like I was, I went to art school I had like some limited success after art school, but like really limited. And like I said, like the internet wasn't what it is now. I was like, went to art school for drawing and ended up making mostly textiles and like soft sculpture. And then my mid twenties, I kind of like was working in a call center full time. Cause that's what you do when you <laughs> graduate with a bachelor of fine arts and was very much like, Oh, I'm not an artist anymore. Like I'm, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. 
and I went back to school to learn animation. And so that wasn't totally wild. Like I had grown up doing a little bit of animation and even in high school had studied multimedia. But yeah, at the time, like 2007, 2008, when I was like making moves to go to university, the animation industry was really different. And I, yeah, I thought of myself as an artist. I was like, I'm not going to make cartoons. That's so lowbrow. <laughs> that was me as a 17 year old, like in denial about how lowbrow I am. <laughs> yeah, I went back in my mid 20s because I'd started seeing animation being used in what I considered to be artistic arenas. Like it was, I'd go to, you know, theatre shows and the people were using it for sets and props and like projection art was popping off and I was watching a lot of documentary film and it's happening a lot in documentary film. So it wasn't this thing where I was like, oh, if I become an animator, I have to make children's television, cartoons or advertising. I was like, there are artistic applications that I can actually make money because particularly at that point I was very much like oh I don't want to be a struggling artist I need to you know you start your body starts falling apart you start having actual bills and you're like oh I really need to work out how I'm I could make money yeah so I went back to animation school and then it's interesting because I thought that by becoming an animator I like wasn't going to be an artist anymore I was like I'm going to be a designer and I know that people listening to this will probably they're just like, those are the same things. <laughs> In the art and design world, people get really, people can get funny about words. Anyway, but this felt like a real personality shift that I was like, I am now a designer. Things need to have a function. Things need to have a purpose. There needs to be a brief. There's like no wishy-washiness kind of, which, you know, in the art world, obviously, yeah, like things can be a lot more fluid and abstract. And I was very much like, I'm going to be a designer. I'm going to just like work in a studio, work in an agency, you know, go home at the end of the day, have a weekend. I'm going to be a normal person in society. Not to say that artists aren't, but like when you're an artist, you can sometimes think of yourself as like outside of society a bit. Anyway, I'm just laughing at myself. Anyway, I'm sorry if I take ever to get to the point of this question. I love it. I love the way that your brain works. <laughs> But yeah, so it wasn't until I became an animator that I even started thinking of myself as a brand. And weirdly, it was one of those things as well, where I think just growing up as a millennial and also being, it also even just having an art background, that that means that you just pay a lot of attention to media and information. It was like branding kind of came naturally. I was like, oh, I, you know, we'd learn things that Uh, because I went to school for animation and interactive media. So there was branding elements that you would learn within my bachelor. And yeah, it was kind of like whenever we'd learn things, I'd be like, didn't we all already know this? Haven't we watched the Gruen transfer for 10 years? Haven't we like read, you know, magazines? And, but no, apparently I was wrong. Not, not everyone knew all those things. Yeah. So I didn't really, I weren't, I didn't really make it as an artist, ironically, until not like, it took me a really long time basically to kind of get even a rhythm and to feel established. And that was once I'd become a commercial animator, like working on animated content for, for clients. And it was because I realized that I work differently to other animators and other motion designers. And I like to say that while like animation school taught me like the craft of animation and 
teaches you design theory. It teaches you how to actually apply design theory. I think, and this is another thing my dean at art school said on our orientation day. She said she wishes everyone could go to art school. And I actually agree with her because I think going to art school, it teaches you, well, maybe it doesn't teach you, but it encourages you of how to actually see and perceive and process the world around you because basically all you do at art school is you make stuff and then you present the stuff to your class and 40 minutes to an hour you sit there and everyone goes, what am I looking at? What is it telling me? What is it making me feel? Why is it making me feel those things? And it's, you know, when you can satirize it all you want, but there's not, particularly in this day and age where we're flooded with images and content all the time, there's often not really the space to actually critique what you're looking at and what you're consuming. But I think particularly doing it at such a young age, like being forced, because sometimes people are just bringing in, this is no shade to everyone's different crafts, but, you know, art school, you have people who have worked weeks on end on some sort of insane sculpture that uses all different kinds of mechanisms and there's also an oil painting involved or something. And then you have other people that have just like arranged like store-bought water bottles in a formation on the floor and you're giving each of those things like equal interrogation and it makes it, it's just interesting hearing how other people are interpreting the same kind of visual information. And I do think particularly recently where I've been having conversations with people and they can't spot a deep fake, they can't spot when they've like regurgitating misinformation or fake news or like I just, it's really interesting because I'm like, don't we all, I think I take for granted that those seven years of education essentially in image creation has given me a pretty keen eye for, yeah, just interrogating images and a lot of people around me don't have that and I wish everyone went to art school basically. (laughs) But, yeah, so essentially also along the way in all of the, you pick up, you just know, you meet people. You meet people at school, you meet people at exhibitions and those people, like I, some of my first clients when I started animating were people I'd met at nightclubs in my early 20s that now work in government or, you know, are human rights lawyers or you'd work at Vice, work at Oxfam, like work at all these places. Like people end up in different places and that's what I meant before with the comment about nepotism. It's like those networks then it's who it does become who you know because it's kind of like there's not a lot of time to get things done particularly in the pace of today's market and so if you already know someone and you know you have like a trusted connection with that person they're going to work with you because they trust you even if your skills might be like a little bit different to what they need like they'll they'll rather work with you because it's because working with people is actually kind of the most important like actually being able to have conversations and trust people is kind of more important than how talented you are as a designer or artist. Yeah. Oh my goodness. There's so much in that. I'm just like, oh, I want to unpack so much of it. And we only have an hour. (laughs) Oh, I just think it's brilliant. My husband studied fine arts painting at VCA and he had come from, you know, the outer Southeast People did not go to art school in his school that he went to and everything. And he he talked about the nepotism and he talked about, wow, like these parents, you know, these people's parents like own galleries or like their cousin does or he's like, whoa. And he got the same sort of thing that like you better go become a graphic designer because no one's going to make it as an artist. And he, yeah, he just said oh, so much of it was about schmoozing wealthy people and getting patrons and getting all of this on board. And he was just like it wasn't necessarily what I thought it was going to be when he 
initially started. But I love when you talked about dissecting images and really seeing things. And one of the most famous kind of advertising marketing frameworks for looking at audience is the empathy map, which was created by Dave Gray, who went to art school and basically, you know, advertisers use it as like, what are, what did the people feel? What do they think? What are they saying? What are they thinking? And that's exactly what you're just talking about. So I think it's amazing. And so then in terms of the animation, when you said, I didn't feel like I'd made it necessarily to, for want of a better word, until I became like a commercial animator, how did that like, how did you go from, okay, I'm going to go down that path and study and do all the things to, okay, I'm going to go out on my own and like be a business and then meet up with these people that you've met at nightclubs. And like, how did you go from, okay, I'm going to do this, maybe working for somebody else to, I'm going to start my own business and I am representing myself as my name and I'm going to go out and get work. What's interesting because when I was making like art and when I say art, I mean, I was like having exhibition shows and thought of myself as an artist, but I had a day job in a call center. And no shame to call centers, by the way. I worked at many call centers and I think they give you so much knowledge and groundwork for how to talk to people. I'd be a completely different person if I hadn't have done my time in a, working in a call center. Like even in terms of client, like it actually, how I've deal with clients now is like a direct link like if I had gotten if I had made it in my early 20s like which is what I I guess I wanted I would have a completely different career I'd be a completely different person I'd probably be a nightmare to work with (laughs) oh sorry I cut you off about call centers no that's okay this is funny because I got my ABN when I was still at art school because you need an ABN in order to apply for grant applications and I remember at the time with my thinking then where I was very like anti-capital. You've got to remember it was like, you know, the global recession had just happened. There was like Occupy Wall Street stuff that was going on. That was kind of a bit of the the collective vibe was very much like you don't want to be like a sellout making money from your work. Yeah. But I remember thinking it was funny that we had to get ABNs because I was like, I can't believe to be an artist. I need to be a business <laughs> at 19, 20, 21. And part of it still is a little bit like how funny it is that like to do what should be kind of something that everyone, everyone should be an artist, basically. It is funny that you need to have an ABN. But so I got my ABN really early and because I am so, I guess probably because I grew up so lower class, I'm like terrified of the tax department and like I'm just terrified of like somehow screwing up or doing the wrong thing. And so from the very beginning, anytime I made any time of money, I was like, well, I've got to, claim this. So I was doing tax returns for like making no, I was making like $500 one year from like selling one piece of art or something. And I'm like telling my accountant, like, make sure you include this. Like, <laughs> and I also like, I, I had a website really early where, you know, a lot of other people who are in like the art world might have just kind of a very simple, a very simple portfolio website. But I was it's interesting because I'm like, that's kind of what probably got me into, in adulthood, got me back into animating. I would make gifts for my website. I was always changing it, like always. Essentially, that was like where I was testing out design stuff before I necessarily thought of myself as a designer. And so I think like the branding aspect of it, like I said, it came naturally to me. So I was kind of treating myself in some ways like I was a brand a lot longer before I had like mindset shifted into being a brand. Yeah, like when I was at animation school and I had decided that I was like, right, I went back to the animation school when I was 26. So I was very young, but at the time I felt like I was over the hill and ancient. And 
I felt like I was running out of time. I was like, you're going to be 29 when you finish this degree in an industry where basically people like the motion design and animation industry is not, it's not an industry where there's a lot of people like in their fifties and, you know, like a lot of people uh, like move into other industries. There's a lot of like young people for whatever reasons. Like it's a relatively, I don't want to say it's a young industry because animation is like a hundred years old, but like, you know, the technology changes so swiftly that like it can feel like a young industry and can sometimes have a high turnover. So I felt like I was running out of time and I was like, I need to start really focusing on being like a business in this immediately. So, and also because I'd been an adult working full time at this point, when I went back to uni, I didn't cut back my hours. So I was working my first year, I was working full time hours, like 40 hours a week. And I was also studying full time. So I was literally at uni until like all night, like, or, you know, pretty regularly in in there until like 4am. I would come into uni before going into the office. I would leave the office and go back into uni. It was like a real marathon, which subsequently destroyed my health. But, you know, I graduated. But at the same time, I was just telling everyone that I was an animator, even though I wasn't yet even really animating very much. I was still learning, but it was like, actually I'm having this, all these memories flood back. I remember I set up because I had my own personal Instagram for years, which like everyone on there had known me from art school and known me from like the Melbourne art scene or the Australian art scene. And I didn't want to all of a sudden start posting like, oh, I'm doing these digital drawings. Oh, I'm doing these little practice animations because it felt really childish. Like I felt Yeah, I guess I was embarrassed, to be honest. I was embarrassed that that's what I was doing, even though actually, like, my first week at animation school, I, like, cried because I was like, oh, my God, this is, like, everything I've ever wanted to do because when you're an animator, you're essentially, like, a director and editor. You're making your own little movies. You're everyone on set for this thing, and it's it's a really particular person who wants to do all of those things. Like, you kind of need to be a bit of a control freak and really obsessive and very imaginative. And so it's like, it's a really particular person. So I had very much like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. But then I had this kind of, I guess, yeah, shame of like, oh, I don't know how this will look to like my greater community yet. And so I started a different Instagram that I didn't want anyone from like my old life (laughs) to see. But I did this annoying thing when I set it up and it like, I forgot to unclick something and it pushed this invite to like everyone I knew in my phone. (laughs) made a new Instagram and I was like, no. (laughs) But in reality, that was like really useful because it did help me, I guess, be like, why are you embarrassed? Like actually, realistically, like what are you embarrassed about? And why do you care what you imagine other people are thinking? Because the thing is, no one was saying, no one was saying to me like, oh, you're making cartoons now. Mm-hmm. There were some people that said like, I think in the beginning there were some people who didn't think of it as art. I guess I didn't either. And so they'd be like, oh, it's such a shame Juliet's not making art anymore. Oh. Be like, oh, she's she's like the most creative she's ever been. Like, what are you talking about? Like, they're making art all the time. Yeah, and I think that just goes to show like, there is like definitely some elitism. Well, there was at least some elitism within the like art world. This was like 2016. So things, I think things have changed. Yeah. So I I was like telling everyone once I got this Instagram going and people knew someone I had gone to art school with who now lived in New South Wales, she knew someone that was making a documentary and they had no money because it was just a self-funded documentary and they wanted some animation for it. And I was the only animator that anyone knew. 
So, and because I had this Instagram where I was telling people I was now an animator, <laughs> you put her in contact with me. And I remember I was literally in my second year animation school. She was asking me if I could do all these things that like I was literally just learning. And I was like, yep, 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 yep. Oh, yeah, I can do that. Yep. Oh, we can work something out. Not even lying, just like she had no money. So it's not like she could go to anyone else. But just being like, well, I'm going to work out how to do it. Because at that point it was like, there was no other options. I was very much like, I am, like I said, I was working full-time and studying full-time. So I was, everything was very much like laser focused on like, like I said, I don't want to make it sound like I'm ragging on call centers, but I think I was in a call center, working in a call center for 10 years. And I essentially didn't have like any other there was, didn't seem like there were ways out for me. Like I was applying for all kinds of different jobs, but as I've said, like even within, you know, even with the Bachelor of Fine Arts, I wasn't getting jobs at galleries that I'd volunteered at for like half a decade or various different places. Those places exist. Like I said, there's a lot of nepotism and there's also a lot of people that want those jobs. It's just hard. So I wasn't getting other jobs and it kind of got to this point where I was like, am I going to be here forever? And I did get to a point as well where I was like, if I'm here forever, I don't think any less of myself. But it was more that I was like, I actually feel like I'm wasted here. Like, I think I have skills. I think I have I think have value that I can provide in other ways. Like particularly after my first few years in a management role there, I was, I was bad at my job. I was like, I shouldn't be here anymore. I'm like letting, I'm letting you as an employer down. And yeah, so, but I did really, I was really determined. I was like, I can't turn, I need to buy 30, I guess. Like as a lot of people feel that pressure, I was like, I really want by 30 to be like, to be on my, like be making this work, like to have a kind of career outside of this. And so, yeah, I lied my way into my first freelance job. And then from that job, like that documentary ended up premiering in 2019 at the Sydney Film Festival. And like the Australian documentary industry is relatively small. So other documentary filmmakers saw it and they happen to be documentary filmmakers that are like veteran documentary filmmakers. And so the next thing I worked on was like a Myth Premier Fund funded documentary. And like, it just became a thing that I was like, oh, this, I guess is my niche. So I can now start going out of my way to tell people because I was talked to other animators and nobody else was actually kind of specifically going for doco. But I think because documentaries were already something that I had like a keen interest in, I like talking a lot. God, I just talk a lot. You know, my mom's family are Italian. So we're, we're a culture that talks a lot. And yeah, so, and that's a big thing in documentary. You just end up getting into these like massive discussions about historical events and really niche topics and so I think it's just an industry that's worked out for me yeah essentially it wasn't until the pandemic I held on to that call center job as long as possible I was still freelancing while having it because I felt terrified of being out on my own because I figured oh I didn't also have the skills to run a business it was like so much I had to learn so much but then when the pandemic hit I couldn't work in the call center anymore and I was also in debt because I had done all this extra training outside of university. I'd paid to do software courses. I'd bought tech, like I'd bought laptops, like, and all this money that like at the time I was like, I'm not afraid to spend this money because I'm spending it on like my future. But at the same time, I wasn't anticipating that I would lose my job during like a global financial unpredictability during, 
you know, a huge crisis. So it was like a really scary time. And I essentially just was like, well, I have to go throw myself into this fully and there's no other option. And that is when I literally just posted on my social medias being like, hey, by the way, I know that people might all of a sudden realize they need digital media. And by the way, I make animated content, by the way, like I can make illustrated and graphic design content. So let me know. And that's when these people in my network, people I'd gone to clubs with in my twenties or people I who had share houses with my friends or people who used to play in punk bands that I, you know, used to go to their gigs now worked in various different careers. And so started making like a few different videos for people and it, kind of was a bit of a runaway train at that point of the pandemic as well because everyone had a bit of money, I think, and everyone needed to get messages out. Mm-hmm. They also didn't, they'd never really used freelance animators and motion designers before. So there was actually an insane amount of work. It was a bit like it was hard to talk about because I personally was like, wow, oh, my God, I can't believe how fast I'm like having these major career milestones. But then obviously the rest of the world and even myself like that I'm not, I'm not going to hear it sound like it was all great but it was just I think for me because I had this thing to focus on and mm-hmm. everyone else didn't have those things or I intellectualized immense immense amount of guilt I actually didn't allow myself to feel that guilt until probably like two years later because I kept telling myself like just be happy you should just be grateful you should be grateful that you have so much work that you need to work 16 hour days and all of a sudden you need to learn how to write contracts even though you don't know anything about writing contracts and all of a sudden you're making more money than you ever anticipated and like now you have to work out how to pay all this. Like, you know, you learn, it was insane. The amount, when I think about it now, I'm like the amount of information I learned in 2020 about running myself as a business is insane. But it was also this really pivotal point of like going, all right, well, you can't turn back now. Like this is what you do for a living. And like, you have to care about all this business stuff now because it's literally how you're going to eat and have a roof over your head. Oh my goodness. Again, so much in there. Oh my goodness. So much in there. And so, oh, I don't know when you were talking about the animations and the documentaries and, and it showing in Sydney, and then you had these veterans come and it reminded me of one of the first animated, I think it was a documentary. Maybe it was just like a film was Persepolis. Persepolis. Do you know that one from 2007? It was about an Iranian woman. I can't remember exactly. I'll find it and put it into the show notes. But I remember being like, oh, you can have like heavy content that's animated, you know, like it's not all upbeat and bright and positive all the time. And that was like the first time I saw an animated film that wasn't like, I don't know, Disney or something else. It was like, this is serious stuff. And so you deal with a lot of serious elements, not even serious, but you you very much focused in your documentary sort of life in terms of projects that centre feminism and and equality and First Nations and LGBTQIA plus sort of stories, did they just come about because of the veterans that you were working with? What Like tell us about that sort of journey that you've gone into with what you create content with. Well, for the most part, it's because of, I suppose, the communities that I already existed within. Like I was already like within the queer community already like some of the first projects I did which were just illustration projects were yeah feminist projects I guess because 2015 2016 2017 like with the Me Too movement and stuff there was like a big push towards yeah like more feminist education and 
because also the rise of social media and that kind of content, people just wanted, I guess, like graphics that people always say like they want stuff that's youthful always come to me like we really want something that's youthful and I'm like I'm in my mid-30s but <laughs> so youthful but yes <laughs> but, but, I can make something for the youth <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> funny cool young kids I was lucky in that regard I guess that just people that was just the communities I was around and also within documentary a lot of the time people are making documentaries about oppressed communities like you're not normally the people who might be making documentaries about mainstream kind of issues are probably very big, like commercial networks might make, you know, they're going to make a documentary about the Anzacs or about general kind of Australian history or these kind of big, big things. But when people are making like independent documentaries or documentaries that are yeah, just, I guess, more independently led, they're usually about oppressed communities and, because I was already working with in making content for various marginalised communities, people just, you know, they'll ask someone, like, who made you the animation for that? And and literally I just started telling everyone I knew that I was an animator. Like I tell my Uber drivers, I tell, like, I was getting an iron transfusion. Also, if you tell people you're an animator, they, like, light up. It's really wild. When I used to tell people I worked in a call centre, I would have like a trauma response essentially. I would like brace myself for whatever they were going to say to me about what they thought about call centres. And I would have to like respond in a various way of like, oh, we actually do social research for the government, but I would kind of be really professional about it. But when I tell people I'm an animator, it like brings in that they're in a child. They're often so disappointed when I'm like, oh, you know what, a lot of my job is just sending emails and I'm on the computer all day. Like, you know, I'm like, it's not, I'm not sorry to break like the magic. <laughs> but but it is, it is really interesting how people will be like, and you make money from this and you actually it's interesting because I work in documentary. I do take it really seriously because it means that, like I said, I'm very aware of like how pro- people process images and also how like when you elicit emotional responses in people, how those stories mean things to the audiences, I guess. And I've had moments with people where you're working on a project about a political movement in the mid-20th century and they might have like ASIO files that are now to the, open to the public and they want them to be animated on screen in a particular way or they might have like a newspaper article or sometimes people have been like, we don't actually have this newspaper article but we want you to like make a fake newspaper article and I was having these ethical conversations with them about like, well, I don't actually feel ethical making a fake newspaper article because... <laughs> I think people interpret documentary as truth. And even if these words were said, I think portraying them as if they were said as a headline in a newspaper feels dishonest. Whereas I think if we can put it in a different way where it's like very obvious that it was said as a verbatim conversation or like it's just, it's really interesting. There becomes these ethical questions about like how do you tell history in a way that you're not trying to manipulate your audience, I suppose. You're trying to tell history in the most kind of honest way possible and it becomes really obvious that it's like there is no objective history like history is like this everyone has different narratives and so when you're making a documentary you really have to focus in on you're always going to be leaving stories out so like every time there's a documentary I've worked on launch we'll have a Q&A and I have to watch the 
director kind of squirm when someone says and like well what about this you didn't talk anything about this and they have to talk about how they edited out like had to edit out like four hours worth of footage about that just because it like didn't kind of fit the particular narrative of this documentary so I take it really seriously and I remember I was in like a Didi coming home from my parents house on a Sunday night and I was just like staring out the window and I was about to cry I can't remember what I was going to cry about but I was like thinking about something really intense (laughs) and the driver I lived in the city at that time. So I think he didn't expect someone to be going home. So he was like, where where are you going? And I was like, excuse me? And he was like, where are you going? Like this late on a Sunday, he was like, are you a surgeon? (laughs) I was like, what? No, I'm not a surgeon. He was like, oh, are you a human rights lawyer? (laughs) Wow. He was like, oh, what do you do for a living? Why are you going to the city this late? And you just seem so intense. You're just thinking about something so intensely. And I was like, oh, I'm just an animator. <laughs> like, I'm just an animator. And I think I was. it was actually just because I was moving house. Like I was just struggling work with moving house. And I was like, I'm just an animator and I've just got a lot on my plate at the moment. And he, yeah, it was really interesting because then he started talking to me about AI and I started explaining to him like my thoughts on AI. So we had a very intense conversation in the end, but it was so funny because I was like, yeah, you would expect me to be probably a lot sillier than I I am sometimes. Not to say that I'm not silly. I think a lot of people think I'm very silly, but there's a lot of like heaviness in a lot of the content I make and I take it pretty seriously. Yeah. And I think I've been really lucky as well because a lot of people will talk to you about how like, oh, sometimes you just have to take on projects from clients that don't align with your values. And I've been pretty lucky. There's been times where I'm like, you know, I've worked on projects for bigger brands and I've kind of been like, oh, it's interesting because like they're not even that bad. But I think because most of the projects I've worked on have been really grassroots and like, you know, like people I've known, it just always feels different when I'm working with bigger brands where I'm like, oh, you guys do do some things that are a little bit against my values, but like not entirely. And I think that's the point I'm in now is that now I'm like at this position where in order to earn more money because the world is just more expensive, I have to kind of work out which values I'm like okay to be flexible with and which ones I want to be firm with. Mm. But it's interesting you right at the top of the interview brought up just the general feeling at the moment and I was thinking about with the referendum, I I actually got so activated after the referendum because I did feel an immense amount of guilt. I was like, you know what? I didn't do enough. I took for granted that I live in a in a north bubble and that like everyone I spoke to is was voting yes and I was just like, oh, I got lazy. I got complacent. And I was like, you literally make media, you make content like for a living. I was just like, and I think it really yeah, it just it has reactivated something in me where I do feel a lot more staunch in my values, I guess, but I also feel a lot more empowered to use my skill set to support causes that I care about. And for anyone who's listening outside of Australia who's not aware, in 2023, Australia had a referendum for First Nations people to have a voice to parliament. And unfortunately, well, unfortunately, in my opinion, I know there's people that listen to this who have a different opinion, but it did not pass. And so... Yeah, I think though when you mentioned, and I think this goes for a lot of people working with bigger brands, sometimes it takes somebody like you with your background and your interests to then change things internally at a bigger brand because you're bringing a perspective and maybe asking questions even in a, you know, in a consulting kind of questionnaire where we're talking about what are we actually making and what does the animation look like and who's included. 
without people in there who have different values and challenging what they're doing, things won't change. So I think it's really interesting when people are looking at, you know, obviously some companies you may be like, absolutely not. For example, I had somebody contact us who wanted to work with me and I had to say no because they were involved in the gambling industry and just I I don't want to be part of making more people you know, part with their money in gambling. And that's just my personal value. But there will be other companies that I work with who maybe from the outset, I'm like, oh, okay. But when I get in, I'm like, actually, this and this and this could change and change for the better. And you could be a leader in that space. So I think it's really interesting to have those challenges, but also think about what you want to do going forward, because not every brand obviously is going to align with every value. But I think it's really interesting when you're talking about which ones are an absolute no, and which ones am I be like, you know what, maybe I could, you know, look at my own beliefs or challenge their beliefs when we work together. Does that make sense? No, definitely. And like, that's what I found from, so I've been now freelance full-time on my, like for four years and I've had other rent, like I've done some teaching and mentoring in amongst there. And I have done this year, I um, experimented with going into a studio environment and also doing a little bit of work in-house for a brand. And both times it was a real, wake up call for lots of things. Yeah. So during the pandemic, I was working for myself. I was majority of the time single and majority of the time living alone. And I had these really big internal changes. Like, like I said, like, I know it's like, oh, I was an artist and now I'm a business person, but like, that was like a lot of internal work for me to confront various sorts of wounds I had emotionally about like money and about self-worth and about so many different things like it was actually like I'm actually like a fundamentally like different person from when I started like working for myself full-time and it was interesting because I often will think you know all of this these thoughts that I have are universal because because I I don't know why but so often I'll we'd enter these workplaces and I was really affronted with like, oh no, <laughs> once again, Juliet, like you think this way, they think that way. And it was really interesting as well because I hadn't had a boss for so long. And also even when I, like I said, when I worked in the call center, I was in a managerial position. So I had a certain level of authority. I'm entering these workplaces as like bottom of the barrel, like lowest level of the hierarchy. So it was really interesting kind of coming in and being like, I run a business outside of this and now I'm like I'm a nobody here and having to work out how to kind of professionally push back on certain things and behaviour and what behaviours you're just going to kind of allow to exist because like, oh, that's really not that bad sort of thing. Or mm. And that was really interesting and the first place was only three days a week so it was it was two to three days sometimes it was fine. I would leave and I'll be like, oh, okay. Like, you know, now I can go back to being normal. But the second job was five days and it was really interesting how quickly it brought back those, the experiences of being an employee, like just even like not taking proper breaks and even just like the level of pressure. I couldn't believe the level of pressure I felt. And I'd have people that I was working with who were like, I can't believe that you freelance. Normally freelancing is so stressful. And I was like, do you guys not feel stressed in here? Is it not stressful in here with your boss, like wandering around and like, just, just, I was like, this is insane level of stress. This is so much more stressful than freelancing. So that was interesting. Cause I, 
you know, I get really cocky. I'm like, my therapist graduated me from therapy. She says I'm good for now. Like all these things. And then literally like two weeks in a regular job doing nine to five. And I'm like, oh my God, no. (laughs) You can't handle it. Yeah. So I really, my heart goes out to everyone that does find working nine to five like difficult because particularly when it comes to having challenging conversations about even just workload, it doesn't even need to be like values. It can just literally be actually insane. Like I, I think that workload is about values because I think that if you have a kind of a workplace system that I know exploitation is like a really big word, but I think that we probably underestimate how much of our how much of our industries do operate on levels of exploitation. And I think that's why people often don't like sympathize with people who go on strike is because they're like, oh, they're just being ungrateful. But I think, yeah, particularly, I mean, the film and TV industry, it's, they'd work really intense hours. And that's like an industry that I guess I'm like a part of in my own way. I feel like I'm not a part of any industry because I think I'm a cowboy that's like out on my own, just doing what I want to do. <laughs> but like I am technically in the film and TV industry. But yeah, I think those conversations do come up that people, particularly I think in cultures like Australia, that we really celebrate this like idea of like the battler and the kind of, yeah, just like working hard. And I think with office-based jobs or computer-based jobs, we often underestimate how hard the work is because it doesn't look strenuous. But it's like a lot of it is just cognitive fatigue. I think we really underestimate the cognitive fatigue and the overstimulation, the sitting in still all day, the offices with fluorescent lights, the windows that don't open, like all those things that contribute. And I think there's changes that are happening. But, yeah, I don't know where I, how, I can't remember the question. Oh, no, um, I can't. I mean, no, I was just talking about how you got into different sort of documentary areas. I was going to ask who were any of your mentors during that time when you moved? I think you've talked a little bit about between the lines, even just what you were talking about then about like looking after your health and like taking a break and stuff. But what would you like to talk about? Usually we always say, what are you most proud of? So I'm going to have to ask that at the end. And then how can people get in touch with you? But what else would you like to talk about out of all these questions? Say if you're, I'm going to pretend that the people listening are specifically motion designers. Motion design and animating helped me learn business skills that I have since applied to going and like I've gotten arts grants with the new business skills I have because I finally understood how to make a budget and I finally understood Mm -hmm. how to write a grant application. Even though it's like for 10 years, I was going to like grant application workshops and was like, just still not getting it. It was like, oh, actually now I get it because I've do PL statements and like understood things all of a sudden. So when I first was freelancing, I did a thing called Motion Hatch, which there's so the motion design industry is relatively small. And because we're so online, you will know motion designers like all over the world. You'll be in the same slacks with like when NFTs were taking off, there's like Beeple is probably like the most, the wealthiest person from the NFT kind of things I can't think of the right word essential industry I guess you're like one person removed from like the top of the industry kind of so it's like a pretty it's pretty wild and also the major difference with the motion design and animation industry to the art industry is there's like a lot less gatekeeping the art industry people will like withhold where they're getting specific materials from 
there's a lot more scarcity, I think. Like it's a lot more like what I make is really specific. And whereas in the animation industry, you could DM someone who's won an Emmy and say like, I really loved your opening titles on insert whatever. And they will say, oh, I'll send you my project file. You can just look at my project file and like see how I did things. Although more, now and more and more people will literally sell their project files so that they can actually like make a little bit of money. But it's it's really like it was actually eye-opening how much people are just like willing to share information because it's literally just a bunch of nerdy artists at home with their very expensive computers a lot of the time working by themselves, making something that majority of people are not even going to pay attention to. And so when someone else actually like acknowledges it, it's special. And so, um, yeah, when I first was freelancing, there was a thing called Motion Hatch in the UK. It started by a female British motion designer who was kind of like, hey, there's not enough people talking about the business of being a motion designer. And so she had a podcast and she also had a mastermind group. And so I was in a mastermind for three months in 2020. And the leader of my mastermind was the head of a stop motion animation studio in Brooklyn. And they, even though they had been around for a few years, like I said, the pandemic was like a bit of an animation boom. So they ended up getting like all this work for Netflix. And that was just wild for me to have like immediate access to someone who's running a studio that's now like a 200 person studio and making like big budget projects for like a major streamer and also then within the group there were all these other animators who were majority they were all men and it was interesting because this is where I guess I started really taking yeah my parents encouragement I started appreciating that because all these boys were so much more established than I was they had they had much more successful careers like I was very green but I just had so much more like belief in myself than any of them to the point where I was like am I insane but it wasn't like I didn't think I was the best but it was just this thing where I was like I don't think I need to be the best in order to be like worthy of certain certain things and it was just interesting being in this group where I would end up kind of almost like encouraging these much more successful men <laughs> it was very really bizarre oh wow yeah but it was it was like fundamental in terms of like yeah just having this community of people to kind of talk about your business struggles essentially with my first like business group yeah so that was really useful in terms of yeah the specifics of being a business that works in motion design I think now if you're going to be doing any form of like digital arts the thing I would say is that like, I don't want to say don't get comfortable, but the tech moves faster than anyone else. So it's kind of like an industry where you you really need to be a lifelong learner. And I think that's probably why I enjoy it because I do enjoy that learning aspect. It can sometimes make you a bit resentful because it's like once you get comfortable in something, they've like announced some new button on something that like does <laughs> like your major skill set. Like I will admit it's been a journey with generative AI, particularly because I'm someone that's been drawing on computers since I was a child. So it's like I have a love affair with drawing on computers and now it's like, oh, you don't even need to draw it. You can just type in this prompt and isn't that amazing? And I'm like, no, it's kind of sad because I love the actual action of drawing. So what advice, you've given a whole bunch just then to, you know, particularly for animators, but what advice would you give for any kind of aspiring artist or small business owner 
who is listening to this and maybe they're in a call center right now and they're listening to it on their lunch break or their 15 minute, you know, break. Like, what would you say is really instrumental to just getting started? Like if they're like, oh my God, I want that career. I want to be talking to other people who are creative or I want to become an artist or, you know, but they're just thinking, you know what, I've done, like you were in that point when you said I've been here for 10 years. Like how did you actually mentally get yourself out of that to start? I think for me, I don't think I would have gotten out of it if I had a fixated on how dissatisfied I was in it. I used to really openly talk about like, I knew how lucky I was to have that job. There's like a trend on TikTok now where people will talk about their lazy girl jobs. And I started that. Well, I didn't start that trend, but like that job for me, it was one of those jobs where I was like, it was definitely, obviously it's stressful, but it's it, a lot less stressful than like the work I've done at agencies and stuff now. It was like, I also got to work with, like I have friends that we still have dinner regularly, the girls I used to work with in that call centre. I've, you know, been to their engagement parties, have helped them with their like fifth, their children's fifth birthdays. It's like, you know, we're like, we're still really tight friends because literally for years of our 20s, we were having dinner together, like most nights of the week and working. Also, we were working in a team. So it's one of the most successful group chats I've ever had because when someone pitches an idea like, hey, should we do this? We're all like, yeah, I'm going to check my calendar, right? And like, we're all just, we're all, we know how each other work. So Mm -hmm. it's, and we're all in really different industries. Like we're not, none of them are animators, but yeah. So it's really interesting. The people I met also while I was there, call centers are literally the most diverse cross-section of the population. You have people that have PhDs and people who dropped out of high school at 15. And you have people who are like, princes in their home countries and then people who are like refugees and have come here with nothing so it's like this amazing cross-section of the population that's like I knew when I was there I was like I will never work in an agency that has this level of just diversity we had like an 87 year old employee Mm. who worked every day for the call center like in his tie and super in a briefcase even though he didn't need it and on Fridays he would wear like a skivvy because that was his casual wear and so it was this Actually, I can't believe I'm bring this up already. Like that was a really big thing actually when I lost my job was I was like, it was a real grief that I was like, I never got like a going away from like, like I've managed 60 people, you know. It's like I didn't get to say goodbye to any of those people. And that was like actually quite sad because, you know, you're having just casual chats about those people. Some people like not even casual. I've like held, you know, employees while they cry about like, dead family members or people who had people say very abusive things to them on the phone and you have to kind of console them or like setting up room in our like briefing room for people to pray during Ramadan. Like it's like a very, like, I mean, this isn't just call centers. I guess it's just jobs in general when you work in industries that are really diverse. It's just like you have to kind of have this like really broad spectrum of skills and empathy that you learn. Like you literally just learn how to communicate with lots of different people in lots of different ways. And so I was never, I'm not going to say never, there was definitely years there where I was like, oh my God, what am I doing with my life? But I got to a point where I was like, I'm so lucky that I get to like get paid a pretty decent amount of money to only really, some days I was working long days, but most of the time call center shifts are like five, six hours. You know, it's like I would sleep in, I would have brunch, do yoga, and then I would show up to work at like two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon. Like this is a pretty dreamy lifestyle. 
And like, you know, I would get home kind of like nine or nine o'clock or 10. But so in the, the just before, like before I went back to uni, I was very appreciative that I was like, you know what? I think I was also appreciative because I was starting to get people ironically in the art world who would say things like, I can't believe you're still at the call center. Oh my God. Like I did three months and like, you know, it was the worst three months of my life or things like that. And I'd be like, I'm so grateful for this job. Like have kept me fed for years and like yeah so I think I don't think I would have gotten to where I am if I'd sat there being really like dissatisfied and ungrateful I kind of was like hey I'm in this position where and my boss was encouraging I used to bring my laptop in to the office and I would be rendering animated videos on my lunch break do you know what I mean so it's like that's not a lot of work like if I was working in hospitality there's no way I would have had that type of luxury and like they used to get me to make like the Christmas posters for the office and stuff and so it was like they were very encouraging of me learning those skills as well and like I'm really grateful to them for that and I think keeping that energy as well of like anytime you can maintain like a gratitude for where you're at you're gonna get to a more satisfying place because when I have interpreted my existence as miserable it's only ever brought me more misery it's like you know neuroscience and also spiritualism that we'll talk about and it's like you know the things you focus on are the things that you see and so I think that's it as well it's like you're never also going to get to a point in your career that you're like oh I've made it and this is the end dust off my hands like we're all done and dusted you know show's over it's like you have to every week is a new (laughs) is a new struggle like I said like the industries technology is moving so fast every industry is being disrupted right now so I I think most people are probably wondering like what their careers are going to look like in a you know few years so I think it's more important to focus on enjoying the journey in whatever way you can and like also working out like your values and how whatever skill set you have can like help you support those values. I think that's, that's how I've managed to have an enjoyable career. Oh, so good. And finally, what are you most proud of from all of this? I mean, you've done so much. What are you most proud of? The work I'm doing, I do mentoring has become kind of the stuff I'm most proud of because, and I think it has to do with like recognizing that it was really special for me to have parents that were so encouraging because I just meet so many people that they don't think that being creative has any value. Like I feel it, find it like deeply sad because I think like we're like literally exist in order to create stuff, even if you think of that as like to create more life and like have children. But it's like we're here to create like beautiful societies and we're here to create like beautiful gardens and we're here to create like interesting experiences and to tell stories. And like I just think everyone, like I said, like I think everyone should be an artist and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're like selling art it should be that you're creating in some way you're creating you're expressing yourself through creation and so when I'm teaching and students just have so like little belief in their right to make stuff like they think it's frivolous and they think it's useless and they think it's not valuable it like (laughs) <laughs> like breaks my heart a bit I guess um, but yeah so I, I found like the work I've done mentoring is is kind of like the stuff I'm most proud of and I did get a very nice handwritten note from a mentee I have at the VCA high school at the end of semester that was like the first time I've had like a mentee actually like give me a little gift and I was like oh that that's actually like very that touched my heart <laughs> yeah 
Oh, I think you'd be an incredible mentor. And I feel like all of those things and conversations and all the people we meet, like I had a year 11 English teacher who was incredible and he always got me to read out my my work. He was just like, you've got a gift. And like, you just need that person sometimes. I mean, my parents were very supportive. I was very lucky like you that they supported us, whatever we wanted to do. But I feel like a lot of people you know, might see mentoring or coaching or anything else like, oh, what am I, you know, really going to do in an hour? But you never know that one thing that you say off the cuff doesn't totally transform that person's life and their opinion of themselves, which is incredible. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing so much of yourself and your insights. If people are wanting to get in touch with you, either for mentoring or working with you on their brand and their animation or a documentary, how do they best do it? Where can they best connect with you? have an Instagram as I've stated. Um, <laughs> I love this notorious Instagram that you didn't want anyone to know about and then really helped you. It's um Juro, J-U-R-O Zone, uh, like Eurozone but with a J because I started it, I first started an Instagram in 2012 and there was lots of talks about the Eurozone. <laughs> anyway, and Bro, J-U-R-O-Zone. And then uh, I have a website, julietmirandaro.com. Um, yeah, those are the best ways. I have an email, juliet at jurozone.com. I'm pretty active in my DMs if you want to DM me. Yeah, those are the best ways to contact me. And so what's next for you? What are you working on at the moment? At the moment, I've had this month where I've kind of been finishing off different projects, a few different things for some documentaries, some other projects for people. But it's been interesting because I did have that month working in-house. That was a real wake-up call because I was romanticizing getting a job all year. I was I thought I was going to stop freelancing. And I was like, get a job, you know, be a normal person, blah, blah, blah. But I, like I said, I found it really stressful. And it has sort of reinvigorated me into freelancing, but making sure I'm freelancing in a way that is sustainable. So it's been a bit of a, yeah, I don't want to say lazier because it's, I'm still doing like 30 hours a week, <laughs> but it's just a, it's just a days where I'm like, I, I think I'm concentrating more on, yeah, making sure I'm taking care of my own health and my existence as a human before I'm, before the brand, because like I said, it was a really intense few years where it was brand, 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 brand. I think therefore I brand. And now I'm like, actually, <laughs> I hate I need to be a human. <laughs> yes, you need to be a human. I just saw this thing the other day I was putting in, I don't know, I was doing something on a website and it said, we need to check that you're human, you know, like those capture things. But just the way that it phrased it and then you put in the information and then it said, congrats, you're human. And I was like, I'm <laughs> human. And maybe you need something like that. Maybe all small business owners need that to be like, my humanity comes first. Uh, I sometimes want to put in like a, a bell that rings, you know, like when you're in primary school, that's like ring, it's recess time. Like, cause I have apps on my computer that are meant to tell me, but I just turn, like, I just say, okay, cancel. Like I want to keep working. But if I had a, if I had a bell go off in the room really annoyingly, I'd be like, okay, time to go and walk around and play time and have my sandwich and you know, all this. Yes. Or even something that's like, you know, Juliet to the office, please. Yeah, oh, love would love that. Yeah, I should set up, I don't know, <laughs> overlord. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are the creative person to set all of that up. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule at the moment to chat. And yeah, I think it's you're just a lovely person to be around and your um, mind and the way that you think is incredible. So thank you so much for joining us. 
Thanks, Fiona. <laughs> you Bye. too. Bye. How wonderful is Juliet? Honestly, I could just talk to her for hours and hours and hours. And as I said at the start, she's somebody who you would be like, yeah, I want to be sitting next to you for, you know, some great length of time because you, the stories and the way she tells things and just her creativity and willingness to like laugh at, you know, life's challenges, but also be really deep and, you know, investigate them as well from different perspectives, but not to take things you know, so seriously or think that every single thing is set in stone that you can't change it and you can't change paths and directions. And she's just got a really wonderful vibe and life lens, I guess, through which it has been wonderful to view the world for the last year working with Juliet. But I wanted to say, as usual, kind of two things that stood out for me. And I would love to hear from you of what stood out to you. And I'm sure Juliet would as well. You can always email or DM me at mydailybusiness underscore or hello at mydailybusiness.com. And Juliet is over on Instagram at Juro Zone. So that is J-U-R-O-Z-O-N-E. She's also over in TikTok land at the same handle at Jurozone, J-U-R-O-Z-O-N-E. And of course, if you want to check out her beautiful website, which as she talked about is full of gifts and animation and all sorts of interesting things that you don't really see usually on a lot of pretty boring websites that are out there. She makes hers interesting and fun. You can find that at Juliet Miranda Rowe. So that is J-U-L-I-E-T-M-I-R-A-N-D-A rowe.com and we'll link to that in the show notes. But yeah, I'm going to talk about two things that really stood out to me. The first was when Julia talked about the idea of playing around with different mediums. And she talked about, you know, when she created her website, that it was interesting and that she was creating these sort of animations and things that she hadn't even started working in that field yet, but that was just interesting and naturally came to her. Likewise, with kind of building this brand and understanding this sort of storytelling and and all of these different elements that would then come in really handy later on in terms of her business. Now, I feel like sometimes in life we can think that you know, oh, we're doing this thing over here and it's not really adding to our business or how would that, you know, ever set me up? I work with a lot of people who are in transition from, you know, maybe they had a different business for 20 years or they were in a different career for, you know, 32 years and then they've decided to start a business. And what I often hear from these people is I'm too old. I haven't worked in this industry before. I haven't done X, Y, Z. And there's lots of reasons and lots of excuses that come up for people And I love that Juliet was like, you know, I can see that this led to this, which led to this, which led to that. And even the, you know, at the time challenges or things that she didn't get, she's like, you know, later on thankful for that and be like, you know what, because I wouldn't have been the person I am now if I had just been able to tick every single thing that I wanted at the time that I wanted it. And I think so often we can, yeah, either not see the life that we've had before our business as super impactful for the way that we run our business now or not see challenges for kind of blessings later on. So I love that she has that attitude towards her life and to her art and to her business. The second thing that I wanted to point out is the idea that Juliet shared about sharing yourself and confidently telling people about what you do. And I love that she was saying, you know, I tell my Uber driver, I tell my like person that's doing my blood transfusion, or I'm not sure if it was transfusion, but you know, telling people and saying, yeah, this is what I do. And I'm proud of it. And I'm going to talk about it with you because you never ever know where work or connections or, you know, just a great conversation with somebody is going to come from. And I know so many people who keep their business, particularly in the first couple of years, like kind of 
secretive or something, or they don't tell family about it, or they don't tell, you know, I don't know, parents at school what they do. And I definitely get it. I totally understand it. I had a long time kind of love-hate relationship with the word business coach. And so when people would say, what did you do? I would (laughs) use all these other words and descriptors as opposed to actually saying what I do. And I just think that you just never know where a wonderful connection is going to come from. And I love that she talked about, you know, I talk about animation and people's eyes light up and just that you can have these conversations with all sorts of people. I've had so many conversations with different Uber drivers, taxi drivers over the years. And I think it's fascinating to find out what do people do in their spare time? Like for example, a lot of Uber drivers are running other businesses or they're doing this on the side, or, you know, I've had different conversations where somebody was like, I'm saving for my wedding. And I decided that I really want this dress. And I was like, that is way over the budget. So I'm just going to drive my Uber after work every night and save up for it. There are so many different reasons that people take on, you know, jobs in the gig economy. And I love that she was talking about talking to an Uber driver because these are the kinds of conversations. One, they're just great for like social human connection that has been proven to be like really amazing for our mental health. But two, you just never know where that conversation might lead. I have had so many, you know, conversations with people randomly who then six months later are like, oh, you know, my cousin needs to get some business help. Is it cool if we send an email to you? You just never know where things are going to come from. So I love that. Just there were so many things that I'll take away from this chat. And it's always a treat to have the chat with somebody and then be able to listen back to it when the episode gets published and hear different things that I didn't hear the first time and take in all these insights and tips. So I just want to say a massive, massive thank you to Juliet for coming in and just sharing so openly and so real and, you know, humanly. I know that sounds ridiculous. We're all humans, but just in such a warm way. It's, it's just so her and it's just such a delight to talk to people like that. So if you are somebody who needs some animation, some creative direction, some art, some, you know, all sorts of things for your business, for your film, for whatever it is that you're creating, then definitely check out Juliet's work. You can check out more about her at, as we said before, julietmirandarow.com. And you can find her on the socials at Jurozone, J-U-R-O-Z-O-N-E. And I can vouch that she is an absolute delight to have around and I can't wait to see what she creates next. So look out for it because I've been talking to her about a couple of things and I can't wait to see them come into fruition in 2024 and beyond. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. You'll be able to find the show notes, including the links to Juliet's different accounts and different places over at mydailybusiness.com forward slash podcast forward slash 370 as it's episode 370. I'll leave it there for now and I'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to the My Daily Business Podcast. For a range of tools to help you grow and start your business, including coaching programs, courses, and templates, check out our shop at mydailybusiness.com forward slash shop. And if you want to get in touch, you can do that via email, hello at mydailybusiness.com, or you can hit us up on Instagram at mydailybusiness underscore. You can find us on TikTok at mydailybusiness or find me, Fiona Kalaki, on LinkedIn. I look forward to connecting.